Welcome to the Insurance Brokers Podcast with your host, Sarah Myerskoff. This business podcast is for ambitious brokers determined to grow their business. Our guests are highly experienced industry experts and innovators. This is the place to leverage their success, learn how to break through barriers to growth, and discover a community of support and ideas whilst growing your business. In part three of this three-part series, we're talking about new, new business and your existing book, the importance of strategic account management and sales management and how to do it well. Hi, Richard. So now we're into the third part of our conversation, which will be podcast number three. We've talked around the ACE principle. I'm sure now that I'm doing enough activity, the concentration of my effort is spot on. I'm really effective at what I'm doing. I've now done some great upskilling on remote selling, and I'm going to hit new, new business. Talk to me about it. I think that new, new business is a really exciting place to be. It's not always an easy place to be, particularly if for professionals. Somebody in a professional service firm put it to me the other day is that it's actually, if you're a consultant, if you're used to being an advisor, One, you're used to telling, and two, you expect to be taken seriously. Whereas the new business person has to listen and ask more and has to accept rejection more. So I think it's particularly difficult for professionals to do new, new business. And there's a sense of, I shouldn't need to be doing this. So I think we need to think very hard about how we do new business. And I think that there are things that we can get right. First of all, make it as unrandom as possible. My own experience on this was the huge power of referral selling. So if I was trying to grow a business, the place I'd always start would be referrals. How much easier it is to talk to somebody who has already been warmed up somebody who says, I think that this person is fantastic and that you should speak to them. So that needs managing and there's lots of stuff we can't talk about it here in detail. But referral selling, I think, is usually the starting point for new, new business. It's the easiest place to go for most professionals. I think we need to think about our process well. Broadly, you've got three steps, haven't you? You've got How do I get somebody interested in what I've got to say? And over recent months, that's typically been webinars. It obviously could be conferences. It could be uh, mail shots. It could be e-shots. So we're creating an interest. So ask yourself, how am I creating an interest in what I do? The second thing is turning interest into opportunity. And quite a lot of people find this quite challenging. So I've developed a dialogue with a potential client. I said, oh, I found that really interesting. That was really useful. But then turning that into an opportunity takes a little bit of thought. And we need to plan without getting over salesy how I'm going to help you say, well, you're interested in this. I think you'd find it useful for us to meet and talk about this specific idea. And then you've got to turn that opportunity into an engagement, which is classic selling. It's 
where we qualify, where we propose, where we negotiate, where we engage. So think about your new business in terms of how can I generate interest? How can I turn an interest into an opportunity? And how can I turn that opportunity into an engagement? Do think about using referrals. Do target well and do use technology. I think new business from an insurance broker's perspective can be quite difficult in what's coming in the next few years in terms of economic downfall and needs to be there in your business. You need to have your your strategy, your plan in place. And I think what you've just said is, is a really good way of looking at it, interest, opportunity, engagement. I think there's a tendency sometimes because it's new and exciting and, oh, you know, I love the new business to maybe not put as much stock into renewals. And renewals really are the cornerstone of your business because it is significantly less time heavy, resource heavy and costly to renew than it is to bring in new business. So do you have a similar kind of way of thinking about growing and through renewal? Yeah, I think growing and retaining is, is critical. I think your point about new, new is often the glamorous bit. Uh, somebody put it to me uh, about their firm. If I win a new client, my boss takes me out to lunch, ring a bell, everyone stands and applauds, and it's, it's rah, rah, rah. When I win five times the amount of business from an existing client, Everyone just shrugs their shoulders and says, well, that's what you're paid to do. So I think there's ridiculous glamour attached to new, new, whereas in fact, there's usually far more business one in grow and retain. It's much easier. Views vary. and I've heard people say five times, seven times, I would say nine times easier to win a piece of business from an existing client than to go out and win a, a new bit of business. It's significantly easier. It's significantly more comfortable for most professionals. We're talking to people who know us and trust us already rather than having to go through that uh, unfortunate uh, early stage contact. So I think the things I'd say are, one, sell actively and continuously into your existing relationships. Doing a piece of work at the moment in a completely different sector where the business has recognized that they've fallen victim to a classic dilemma. That as relationship managers and account managers and client managers, uh, we what we want is stability. We don't want to rock the boat. So I don't want to come and talk to you about something new because you might not like what I say. Heaven forfend, am I going to bring somebody else in to talk about another product or another solution or another discipline because they might upset you and rock the boat with my nice stable relationship. So I'm going to say nothing to you because silence means the relationship's okay, doesn't it? And I'll wait until five minutes to midnight before uh, the renewal and say, oh, we've got to renew now and I won't give you time to renew. So we need to be much more proactive And we need to talk about renewals much earlier. So I like the idea of almost as soon as, in fact, I was talking to a broker the other day, large firm, and they said that they're encouraging their client managers to start talking about 
business issues and potential future cooperation in the month after renewal, not in the month before the next renewal. So talk early, talk wider, not just transactionally, and talk actively. Um, A banking client of mine, we did a, a client review with them, and the one thing they said they wanted more from us, they said, you don't sell to us enough. And I thought I was being a nice relationship manager. And what this guy said was, look, you know us better than anyone who's coming to sell to us because you're in and out of our offices week in, week out, month in, month out. If you don't know what we need, nobody knows what we need. So come to me with new ideas. I won't accept all your new ideas, but I do expect you to come to me with new ideas. So I think we need to be much more proactive in the way that we sell. And when it comes to cross-selling, the first question I ask is not how can I cross-sell, but it's why should you cross-buy? And there's some compelling reasons why your clients should buy more from you. You just be more customer-centric. So proactive selling and manage your renewals earlier and focus on the right, right ones. Absolutely. One of the things we do with a number of clients is um, help to review existing renewal processes and then to develop an actual written renewals procedure with step-by-step guide and and a a load of tools that are associated with it through to embedding those processes. And that's a process and it's the whole thing is a process in itself to get the, the mind shift into the new way of doing things, which covers off everything you've said and and leads us quite nicely into key account management. Now, I've been speaking to somebody recently that we're in the process of developing some exciting things with. And they gave me this example of the incumbent broker being, you know, long-term friends of the client. So they go golfing every quarter, um, very good relationship. Now, the business was lost because the new broker was able to provide something of interest in a much more easy, in a much quicker way. So the incumbent broker had said, look, you need you need a new health and safety program within your business. Here's a health and safety expert, go and give them a call. So absolutely nothing wrong with that. But the new broker was able to generate branded health and safety risk assessment for the business through the content that they had developed and also had been contacting with useful, here's a, you know, a cyber checklist for you, um, check that you're you're covered, you know, lots of useful different contents for about six months before. So they lost the business because of the value that the new broker had been given, but also that one particular, you need this, I'm in a position to give it to you, and and the relationship built there. So so the reason I'm giving you that story. And a quote from Ashwin Mystery from a previous podcast I love, you know the renewal date in an insurance broker. You've got 364 days to prove yourself, regardless of the strength of your relationship. That should be in your mindset. So with those things in mind, that's, you know, key account management is, you know, where I've gone with that. What do you think? Well, managing your key accounts is one of the best ways of generating growth. So over a 10-year period, the... uh, engineering giant Siemens uh, analyzed that they get 2.4 times more growth out of their 
nominated strategic accounts than they do out of their general accounts. And there's all sorts of data out there uh, which indicates that you can generate high growth out of strategic accounts. Uh, strategic account management is a huge subject. It's one that I've worked in and really enjoyed working in for the last certainly 18 years and probably uh, longer than that. When I first started getting involved in strategic account management, it was desperately over-engineered. So we talk about a very simple model. And uh, some people may remember as children playing with with a gyroscope, um, a spinny round uh, toy. And we just base the principles of strategic account management around the gyroscope. So the, the gyroscope spins on an axis. Geocount management has to spin on the customer. So it's centered on the customer. And then there's lots of dynamic activity. That's all the spinning about. That's your ACE model. So there's got to be lots of activity, lots of concentration of effort and high level of effectiveness. But thus far, you've got an axis and a platen, the spinny round bit. And that's a very dynamic model. It moves very fast and it looks very exciting, but it's not stable. So you need to stabilize it in two directions. Um, so you have the frame, which is the structure and strategies that you've got for managing your key accounts. The structure is, have you got the right teams involved? Do they feel and see themselves as a team? Are, they, are you organized around your key accounts? Your key accounts are actually like a, a horizontal business unit that takes into account all the aspects of your organization from uh, technical uh, through to uh, managing the platform, through marketing, through sales, through finance, and so forth. So you need the right structures, and then you need the right strategies for managing those strategic accounts. That stabilizes it in one dimension, but then you need the gimbal that goes around the outside of a gyroscope, and that's your tool, tools and processes. So you need good key account processes. You have, need to have uh, good key account tools in place, like account planning, account meetings, measurement structures, and so forth. And then finally, this gyroscope eventually stops spinning by itself. And so you need to apply leadership to it to continually energize. And that's the string or the, the lever that you pull to move the gyroscope around. So strategic account management needs to be centered on the customer. It needs to have a high level of customer engagement. It needs to be stabilized with structures and strategies. It needs to be strengthened through tools and processes. And it needs to be energized through good leadership. And if you do that, you've got good strategic account management. And some of the work you do with larger firms is is developing that gyroscope bespokely to their particular uh, key accounts, isn't it? It is. It applies perhaps even more importantly to smaller and medium-sized firms because you're then managing a relationship with a much larger client who seems to have all the power. So I think there's a, there's a real set of challenges there where we see a client as a strategic client, but they don't necessarily see us as a strategic provider. Mm, absolutely. That's a really good uh, dynamic to, uh, to bring to mind. I think many of us started in sales, whether that was five years ago or 35 years ago, in broadly stable times. 
the economy was growing. Obviously, we had uh, a little blip of 2008-2009, or those of you think further back, uh, the various crises that we've had in the past. But broadly, we've sold in stable times. We are now selling into an extraordinarily changing world. And it used to be the argument that you heard was, if you carry on doing what you've always done, you'll get what you've always got. We've all heard that. We go, yeah, yeah, yeah. We would argue that in a world that is changing this much, if you carry on doing what you've always done, you will stop getting what you've always got. This is a really dangerous time to be inert. This is a really dangerous time to be complacent or conservative. Does that mean that everything goes? Of course not. But if we want to survive and flourish, we need to recognize that the world is changing incredibly fast. Now, I know that's a truism. So let me be really specific about how the world of sales, if you like, new, new business and existing relationship management is changing radically. And we identify four drivers for this. One is that we need to sell in what the American military strategists call a VUCA world, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. American strategists realized that a lot of military strategy was really um, historic. It was based on the Cold War scenario that all you had to do was deal with Russian tanks driving across the North German plain. Then along came Vietnam, messy, horrible, dysfunctional. And then that led eventually into uh, the Iraq war, Afghanistan, the war of terror, and uh, asynchronous warfare. And so to have a strategy that was based on stability and predictability simply didn't work. So they talked about things being volatile. You can't predict how much they're going to change or when they're going to change. So something as simple as foreign exchange, you know, what's it going to do with the price of oil? That's a volatile world. An uncertain world is you don't know what's going to happen. All sorts of examples. We don't know what's going to happen uh, with COVID. We don't know what's going to happen with the uh, outcomes of Brexit and trade agreements. We simply don't know. Complex. Um, There are people out there, and I've met some of them, uh, wonderful men and women who study the science of complexity. And complexity means that we need to move in real time, we need to be extremely flexible, uh, that we need to have ability to tell stories, that we change our way of working, and we need to manage complexity. And that's particularly true in the way organizations buy, uh, the way that they plan. And then finally, ambiguity. A few years ago, I was sitting in a town hall uh, of a uh, a European bank in the Middle East, and somebody asked the head of corporate banking, I have a question. Do you want us uh, to hit our short-term targets, or do you want us to build recurring income? And the guy looked at him and said, yes, absolutely. Well, which? Both. He said, "Um, well, then let me ask you this, sir. Um, do you want us to be customer-centric or do you want us to hit the bank's product mix targets? Yes. So 
the world is an ambiguous world. We want short-term and long-term. We want customer centricity and we want profitability. So we have to learn to sell in this volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous world. And waiting for that world to be over means that the world will be over. The best sellers can sell in a VUCA world. That's driver one. Driver two is how do we generate high growth in low growth economies? Even before COVID happened in October last year, the prediction for growth in the UK construction sector was 0.3%. Growth in GDP was in single digits. And yet I heard people saying, we're going for double digit growth. Well, where's the growth going to come from? Now, post-COVID, what's going to happen to growth? Well, nobody knows. But where's the growth going to come from? It's not going to come from riding the wave. My customer, I'm talking to somebody, different sector, one of whose supermarket customers is going to open, scheduled to open over 100 stores in the UK next year. That's great. They can ride the wave on that. None of their other supermarket customers are going to open 100 stores in the UK next year. So where's the growth going to come from? Oh, well, it's going to come from seizing market share. Oh, really? So you're going to win business from the incumbent. And how much is that going to cost you in terms of time and reduced commission fee, price, whatever? Do you think the incumbent's not going to fight back? So we only usually win market share by dropping the price, unless we can outflank the competition. So growth in a low-growth economy tends to come from so-called white space, finding the new opportunities, finding the new markets, finding the new upstream relationships, finding the new ways to sell. So those are the first two drivers of sales change. There are a couple of others I can mention, but those are the first two. I think the um, high growth and low growth lever is is really interesting, and some of the work we're doing is around is around uh, the white space. How do you identify yourself with additional offerings, value added services, something that makes the person go? This is something I haven't seen before, and I need it in my life because. I've got this problem, this problem, this problem that's brought around by the current economy. So that's, I think that's really interesting. And you've articulated it in a way that I'm very grateful and may well use because it's what we're doing, just not so well articulated. Good. Thank you. So two, those first two drivers are how do you sell in a VUCA world? And the second is how do you generate high growth in a low growth economy? The third driver is radical and rapid change in buying behavior. Now, the data is really clear on this, that buying behavior has changed. But even without the data, if we just think about the way that our buying behavior as consumers has changed, that we expect to do everything online, that we expect to be asked or told people who bought this also bought that, that we expect to be able to press one button and the whole deal is done. Our consumer behavior has changed. And that is demonstrably changing our business-to-business buying behavior. There are all sorts of things happen. I've referred elsewhere to the change in trust. We can talk about the change in knowledge. 
So we're talking about much better informed buyers. So it used to be, if you just think about the way that we dealt with doctors before, it used to be that I went to the doctor and said, uh, Doc, I'm not feeling very well. What's wrong with me? Now I go to the doctor and say, well, doctor, I have the following symptoms. This is what's wrong with me. This is the medication I should take, but we need to watch out uh, for these side effects. And I think you're going to want to refer me to a specialist. And I've researched a list of the best specialists. And the doctor looks at me and says, well, what do you want me to do? He says, well, just get me an appointment with a specialist doctor. And so the whole role of being customer patient is ignorant. Doctor supplier is knowledgeable. That whole change of knowledge balance has gone. So buying behavior has changed. People come to us with more knowledge. They come to us having done research. They've probably checked us out significantly before we start talking to them. They may even have shortlisted us before we start the conversation. Um, Showpad have done some research that says that a buyer of a significantly valuable problem uh, project in their language, they talk about a hundred thousand pounds spent, will on average have spent 40 man hours researching us before they start talking to us or researching the problem. And people are much better uh, informed. However, they're often much more confused. So buying processes mean that we need to become the interpreter of insight, not the provider of information. So change buying behaviors, change buying processes are the third driver of sales change. And the fourth is rapid change in sales technology. So the move from a paper-based or a PowerPoint-based key account plan to using um, one of the proprietary products. I and mean, we're working on a, an organization at the moment, helping them move their entire key account planning process onto Teams. You know, the change in technology is radical and rapid. The ability to do everything through your phone is extraordinary and transformational. Uh, the ability to predict and then to lead identify and lead, nurture, and get your, your leads ready to buy using technology. The old days of just cold call with a telephone and a pad of paper and your diary, yes, gone. well, they're gone. People still buy from people. People still interact. But sales technology has changed, and it's actually not the – technology that's the difficult bit with this it's the behavior of using the technology mm. difficult bit so those are our, our four drivers you asked me what are the four drivers of sales change selling in a volatile uncertain complex and ambiguous world generating high growth in low growth economies managing radical and rapid uh, buying change and leveraging uh, sales technology there's could add a fifth which is the need for sales to be integrated in the holistic business much more, that sales isn't an outlier, but it's embedded in, in the business as a whole, and asking ourselves, how can we use sales to increase the embedded value of our businesses? Absolutely, and that goes back 
to what we were saying earlier about the culture piece uh, and it being kind of a platform from which everything else is based. Just one more thing that I'll ask you if that's okay. And that is um, how important is effective sales management in this entire process? Sales management is extraordinarily important. And in many situations, it's a lost art. So in professional services, there has rarely been both the culture and the structure that encourages sales management. By and large, people were told to get on with it, uh, and they learned how to do it by watching consummately effective rainmakers and hoping something would rub off on them. In the wider industrial context, a lot of sales management has diminished with the reduction of middle managers, the classic field sales manager with a span of control of six, 12 salespeople. I think that the discipline that needs to come, that there's a hard side to sales management and a soft side. So we've talked elsewhere about uh, the need for sales analysis, data-driven approach, sales planning, goal setting, and so forth. So let's concentrate here on, on the soft side. What do good sales managers need to do? Fundamentally, you need to be a multiplier of the effectiveness of your people, not an adder to. So the classic sales manager position was, uh, I leave you to do your job. And when you get out of your depth, uh, you ask me to get involved. And I swoop in like Superman with my underpants outside my trousers. uh, And I do the job for you to close the business, uh, turn the quarter around, hit the target, whatever. And I swoop out again, feeling really good about myself leaving you either amazed, bemused, or deeply depressed because I've done something that you can't do. Adding to effectiveness is not good sales management. So multiply. How do we multiply? Primarily by coaching. Now, there's some really good tools out there that enable remote coaching that can transform our efficiency and effectiveness in coaching. But broadly, you're going to coach in three places. You're going to coach one-to-one in conversations. You're going to coach either by sitting in on a remote sales call or in a face-to-face call. You remember those? In a face-to-face call, um, doing what the Americans call a ride-along or a joint visit, and then not taking over in the call, but getting involved as a coach, and then also coaching your team in, in team meetings. The key to good coaching is to learn from sports coaches. And sports coaches, one, are data-driven. More and more, this is not based on guesswork, but it's on data, so they work on facts. And two, the best sports coaches ask more than they tell. They don't say, I want you to stand closer to the ball. They say, where were you standing when you did that fantastic passing shot. So they get people to think, not to tell, but to ask. So be a better coach, and they're good ways of learning that. Be somebody who can coach one-to-one, be somebody who can coach in the field or using remote coaching tools, and be somebody who can coach your team. And then finally, I think, on being a good sales manager, is understand your salespeople better 
and particularly think about your understanding of motivation. The the old models, the mid-20th century models of motivation are still useful and still relevant. Um, But I'd strongly recommend some work that's been done on new understanding of motivation. I think there's a tremendous opportunity for today's sales managers also to adapt and adopt some of the really good new thinking on motivation, understanding what makes your people tick. Um, Some of the old models, mid-20th century models of motivation, are still very useful. But there's some great, great work uh, done by people like Daniel Pink in his book, Motivation 3.0, where he looks at what motivates perhaps some of our uh, younger colleagues, uh, but people generally, talks about autonomy. People want to be motivated by freedom to do the job in the way that they want to do in their time with their team, with their techniques. Talks about people motivated by mastery, wanting to learn how to be really good in risk management or in a particular sector. And then he talks about people being very motivated, not just by autonomy and mastery, but also motivated by purpose. And purpose isn't about profit. Uh, As the really excellent writer uh, Simon Sinek says, profit is not a purpose, it's a product of purpose. So if I'm going to work really hard for you, I want to know what it's about. Well, actually, what we're about in this firm is helping engineering companies survive and thrive. What we're about in this firm is making sure that there are fewer widows and orphans out there, and those that are out there are well cared for. So the motivation thing for sales managers is really important. Thinking about autonomy, uh, thinking about autonomy, thinking about purpose, thinking about mastery. So what do good sales managers do? They multiply, they don't add, they coach, and they understand their people. And that is a fantastic opportunity to be a really good sales manager, even if you're only doing it half a day a week as part of your day job. Absolutely. I think that was really insightful. Thank you very much for that, Richard. I think we've covered some really hefty topics with some really tangible steps. So thank you very, very much for that and for your time. I'm sure I'll obviously put your details in the bottom. Anybody wanting to talk to Richard, give me an email and I can pass your details on. Uh, So thank you very much for your time. It's a great pleasure. Always happy to talk. Uh, It's a great subject and it makes a lot of money if you do it well. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you have enjoyed what you have heard, have any questions or feedback, please leave us a review and we will be sure to get back to you. If you would like further information on how Boston Tullis Group can support your business, or if you would like to join us on an episode, please do not hesitate to contact us.